Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi, hi, and welcome. This is Visual Workplace Radio. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. I am your host on this, our weekly radio show on letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at aspects of that. We explore and describe and celebrate the principles and practices of workplace visuality, its concepts and its tools, methods and strategies, and the people and the results of applying, implementing, deploying the technologies of the visual workplace and how they help us let the workplace speak. And as an outcome, we get wonderful benefits, including a landscape of informational transparency, dramatic improvements in quality, productivity, on-time delivery, and the holy grail, we get cultural alignment, the empowerment of individuals and their creative contribution to work. Not just profit, but prosperity. Not just involvement, but a spirited engagement of everyone on all levels of the organization, not just value value add associates, but everyone. You too. (laughs) You too. Welcome. We're going to continue our march through Um, my book today, Work That Makes Sense. I have decided that I'm going to take a bit of a detour because of some of the emails I've gotten from you. But let me just mention some uh, pro forma things um, that I'm obliged to talk about at the beginning of the show to kind of get them out of the way. Let me invite you to our website, visualworkplace.com. There you will find free articles and these podcasts. You'll find my books and the products and services that we deliver on site as we help companies convert to a workplace that speaks. And if you want more information, or if you want to arrange for me or one of our certified affiliates to work with you, our certified affiliates, to work at your company on site, then get in touch with us. You can call us at 503-233-1784. Or you can email us through radio at visualworkplace.com or just go to our website and use the contact us icon. We are happy to help. It is whenever we work with companies, whenever, we are always doing research. That is, we are always looking at the impact uh, that what we teach you has on you and your bottom line, has on your expectations and what you need to have happen for your company to move forward. We are always looking for ways to streamline and make more powerful our methodology so you do get reliable results repeatedly and you learn how to do it yourself. The focus of my company is on self-sufficiency in every possible sense of the word for the individual, for the leader, for the value-add associate, for the supervisor, for the marketing personnel, for maintenance crew, for everyone, whoever you are. Self-sufficiency is what we believe in. It is the anchor of our practice. It is why we do things, and it is what we are dedicated to creating individual by individual and also for the organization. 
So this is what happens when we use visuality to let the workplace speak. The workplace itself becomes independent and self-organizing, self-regulating, self-explaining, and self-correcting. And so do we. It's a beautiful partnership. So we're going to continue today with my sharing the contents of my book on operator-led visuality work that makes sense. And um, as I say, I want to go into a particular direction because of some of the emails I'm getting from you, and I think it'll be a good direction. But you know what I really want to do first? I want to share a poem with you, frankly, because of all the hubbub, the hubbub in our lives and this really startling circumstance that we find ourselves in. I myself have found great refuge in poetry and the thoughts of of the great poets, some of them of our day, some of them uh, from former times. Poets have an ability to distill a lot of otherwise confusing feelings and circumstances into words that are usable, that sing to us, that really strike us with their truth, and that act as a guide, that act as a kind of answer to the question, what the heck, (laughs) what's going on? We're in such a time. We're in such a time. And I came across this poem by a wonderful poet that I know for his other poems. His name is Wendell Berry. He's contemporary. Now, does he live in the United States? He might live in the Northwest, but he may be, in fact, in England. Forgive me for not having his background. Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry with a B as in boy, E-R-R-Y, like blueberry. His poems are simply wonderful. I can reach a little bit further across my desk and and just regale you with the poems that I already know of his. But this one was, this one I stumbled upon uh, a few days ago, and it really helps me now. It helped me now, and I read it about once a day because it because of its message. And it's called The Peace of Wild Things. The Peace of Wild Things. Let's see where it goes. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. I'd like to read it again. It's the way it is for me. The second time I can hear it better. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lay down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. 
For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Beautiful, isn't it? I've found that it's really important in my life to make some personal comment for me to find a way to bring beauty into my day. And if I forget, something inside of me reminds me, usually very strongly, that beauty must be a part of my day. Beauty that I find in poems, beauty that I find in really beautiful music. I have a preference for um, classical music or and for Frank Sinatra and for the Eagles. I have a preference for the Grateful Dead and for Bach and Chopin. Um, and I have a preference for sitting in the quiet and watching the birds feed on my balcony, just feed, busy as they look through the seeds for something that uh, is particularly yummy. And that just kind of brings me back into balance. I think it's very important, and certainly during these times, for us not to lose sight of that. Because usually the alternative is fear. I'm sure you've felt it a lot over the last several weeks. Fear and uh, the white-hot fear of not knowing what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen next. This is the great mantra (laughs) of being on Earth, what's going to happen to me. (laughs) And uh, even though it's reasonable and natural and part of our human condition, it is also something that needs to be balanced by an understanding that we already know. And when we, when we go into the beauty of nature and the beauty of poetry, in visual arts, in beautiful pictures, and in beautiful music, something inside of us says, ah, and just settles down and says, you know what? I'm part of something very great, and it's greater than this moment, and that part is in me. I think it's important. So... We are going to kind of step back a little bit and go into a discussion that we had a few shows back on standards. We're in the chapter uh, still of the building blocks of visual thinking. And if you remember, the first building block in visual thinking is eye-driven we spent a lot of time on talking about the need to know and the need to share. The second building block is standards. And from your emails, it is clear that there's a lot of contradictory or confusing information, sort of information about what standards are and what you should do with them and how they work. And I thought that I would kind of march through these. You'll also find articles on this, on LinkedIn, I just put a series up, and you'll. I think possibly the full breadth of what I'm going to talk about now in standards is captured in articles on LinkedIn and on our website. I think you can search under the word standards and come up with these four or five or six articles. I'll just read the other building blocks so you can place them, uh, because these are the elements of the thinking I call visual thinking on our path to create a workforce of visual thinkers. So, you know, it's really important. Visuality is a system of thinking first, and then it is a simple, I beg your pardon. And then it is a system of 
doing. It's a system of thinking first, and then it is a system of doing. Okay? So, um, the eight building blocks. The first is I-driven. The second is standards. The third building block is the six score questions. The fourth building block is information deficits. The fifth building block is motion. And then it's opposite as the sixth building block, which is work. They are opposites. The seventh building block is value field. And the eighth is motion metrics. So we're just about done, but I want to revisit so that we can get some of the um, principles and premises of workplace visuality in place related to standards. And remember, we are teaching operators this. It happens very simply in a one-hour online session or in this one chapter in this book. But we then play with these eight building blocks. We then integrate these eight building blocks throughout the rest of the methodology of operator-led visuality. So they become a common landing place, a, a dictionary of eight terms and eight def definitions around which the visual workplace is iterative and builds and weaves. When you go into a workplace, whether it is a factory or an office that has converted to visuality, your value-add associates will use this language and knowingly. This is the language that they learned to both understand what workplace visuality is, but also then to use these building blocks as tools to dig in and to build a workplace that speaks. So this is not academic. These, this is practical knowledge the building blocks of visual thinking. What I want to talk about today because of your emails, questions in your emails, is standards. And if you remember, building block two is standards. And I talked to you about how standards are embedded in the definition of a visual workplace where what is supposed to happen does happen on time, every time, day or night because of visual devices. And I said, what is supposed to happen? What is supposed to happen is your standards. That is at the heart of the matter. They are the building blocks of work. And in visuality, we separate standards into two kinds. Your technical standards, that is your dimensions, your product or process specifications, your tolerances, your values, your value or several of them, meaning dimensions, the detailed requirements found in engineering worksheets and in drawings, the precise values you add as you convert material into a product or as you develop and deliver a service, both of which your customer wants to buy, outer diameter, gloss level, exact degree of radiation for a patient site, this is in hospitals, required response time on a fire claim in an insurance office. Okay, exact. So one type is your technical standards. The second type is your procedural standards. Your technical standards are your what. Your procedural standards are your how. The method, that's a procedural standard. The method or the standard operating procedure, the preset sequence of steps that tells you how to do or make something or perform a task. Exactly how to achieve 
your technical standards. Procedural standards create outcomes. They create the specified outcome. How to rivet a bolt, how to set a feed rate, how to tighten a four-nut wheel, how to verify a chemotherapy regimen, how to close out the monthly books, how, how, how. Now, here's the jump. What I just described is very close to another term, a term that we call standard work. Standard work. So, what I'd like to do, because the questions that came have to do with standard work versus standardization versus standards, I would like to specify these. These are not put forth in work that makes sense. I suppose they could be, but that would load up the book with uh, a kind of cycle, recycling, spiraling of uh, explanations that could take us a little bit off-center into very, very exact differentiation. I I didn't really want to do that in this book for operators. I wanted to give a clean pathway. But because many of you are trainers and managers and you live in the world of this other terminology, standardization, standard work, I want to take a short detour and talk about the differences because it really is very relevant to not only your expectations of workplace visuality for operators, but the kinds of mistakes you can make. So please allow me. Many companies, so this is not reading from the book, and yet for me is very central to your success. Many companies produce impressive and lasting results And some pursue improvement. (laughs) Uh, Let's say others pursue improvement as though their minds have been taken over by aliens. (laughs) Let me go on. Taken over by Borg, for example. I'm a big fan of Starship Enterprise and Captain Picard. Borg, the hive mind of a race of aliens with only one goal in that mind, and that is achieving perfection by absorbing everything in its path. Everything. Borg absorbs. And by absorbing everything, it believes it will become perfect because it will hold everything that's on the outside inside. Absorbing you and me and Captain Picard and the Starship Enterprise and the entire crew. The Borg's calling card is, resistance is futile. You've heard that, right? So I want to kind of name this Borg thinking as the enemy. And its antidote is question everything. Borg thinking what to do about it, question everything. So I want us to begin to question the Borg thinking around standard, standard work, standardization. Okay? For me, words matter. 
I perhaps have shared with you this datum about the Sami people who live in the Arctic. They have 180 words for snow in their language. And they have nearly a thousand words for reindeer. Why? Because words matter. I mean, here, in the language of English, I can think of four words that are stages of snow. Slush, snow, maybe would include uh, sleet, maybe we'll, would include blizzard. And right now I'm struggling to find other words that would could be interchangeable with snow. But they have 180, and notice they live in the Arctic. Snow is a condition of their lives. And the differentiation between snow is apparently extremely important to the extent of an extra 175 words to make that differentiation clear. And one suspects that probably lives depend on it. And a thousand words for reindeer, we have one word, singular or plural, it's reindeer. If there's one or there's a thousand, it's reindeer. We have one word for reindeer. In a culture that has another 999, there must be an important difference. You would have to live inside that culture to appreciate that difference and to, to value it. Words matter. Differences matter. Different words, different meanings. Rarely are differences empty distinction. distinctions. Most often, there are reasons for things or concepts having differing names. Pretty is not the same as beautiful. Beautiful is not the same as cute. Beautiful is not the same as Handsome, words matter, this differentiation, in the same way. There is much that many known and proven approaches have in common. While that is so, it is also vital to notice their differences, how and why they are not the same. We do not merge them. Our improvement results can only be as good as our improvement thinking. So it's worth a check, isn't it? To see if what we think is what we mean. Take these three words that I mentioned before, standard, standard work, and standardization. Well, they certainly look pretty much alike. Shall we all call them the same? I mean, after all, they all contain the word standard. That makes them very similar. But are they alike? If so, then why have three of them? But if they are not the same, and they are not, how are they different? And what's the Borg part? So let's begin by defining these. So that when I talk about standards as a building block of visual thinking, we come to an agreement about what I mean and what I don't mean. Let's look at the word standards. Standards are the bedrock of all work. Standards pave the way to repeatable, precise, predictable outcomes. They define the what and the how of delivering goods and services. The what are your technical standards. As I mentioned at the beginning, they are the values, the dimensions, the specifications needed in order to meet your customer requirements. The how are your procedural standards the way in which 
required specs are reliably met or achieved. They're your SOPs, your standard operating procedures. So that's what standards are, and they are indeed the bedrock of all work. Standard work, moving on to the second almost word, but different, not the same as standard. Standard work is not the same as a standard. Standard work focuses on segmenting the work content into sequential elements or steps. In ever more refined chunks or blocks until the best possible sequence is reached. Then we link time with that sequence for greater exactness because what we want as a critical outcome of our standard work is pace or if you will, tack. T-A-K. T, tack, the German word for drumbeat. Bump, bump, bump. Okay? So we want pace. That is why standard work is a core component of pull, a time-based flow. Pull is a time-based flow. Pull at the pace of the customer's need is called tact. So that's what standard work is. It is a way of dividing and subdividing your work into precise and elegant segments that you can pace out so that you know the time quantum that each part of your standard work requires. And you can begin to count out the amount of time that is supposed to be used to compare it with what actually is, and then you move into improvement from there. You squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Let's move on to the third word. The first was standards, the second standard work. The third word is standardization. Standardization is the process for developing and implementing regularity or sameness or uniformity amongst and between things between concepts, between methods, in order to make that which had been different uniform and therefore repeatable. So standardization is to make it uniform. That is slightly different than standard work because standard work is about precision of sub-elements. And standards is a rather broad term that says you need to have outcomes that you can predict. There's a slight but important difference, period. And the Borg, the Borg part, the B-O-R-G part of this is, while these definitions are correct and accurate, as I just described to you, the three words are often used interchangeably and therefore incorrectly. Using these three words as though they mean the same thing results in our seeking to make everything the same by standardization with the mistaken notion that doing so will give us the ability to do the right thing again and again without error. And this provides us in our mind with a surefire way to acquire and retain the gold ring called sustainability. We have to standardize our standards and do standard work. This is a mishmash. It's simply not true. Whether you call it the Borg mind, tribal thinking, or marketing, we really need to be careful not to swallow the wrapper when we take a bite into a new improvement approach. Pay attention to the content. 
get your terms right and your definitions clear, and then decide if you want to eat what's on the inside. Eat the meat, not the packaging, (laughs) even though the marketing makes everything look so yummy. You have to be careful of the tribal think. You have to seek ways to keep your own thinking independent and sharp. Question everything. Inquire. Think. There are tribes out there that swallow the packaging whole. And the packaging can be empty. The Borg do that. They just absorb. Resistance is futile. Our job is to absorb everything in our path, including you and including things that don't make sense. To which I say resistance is entirely called for, needed, and worth it. Question everything. Okay? So, I now want to move on to the question of standards. And the the umbrella here is Borg thinking And visual standards are not outcome insurance. So that's a kind of broad uh, discussion here. Allow me. So standards define what is supposed to happen at work, both in terms of product and service specifications. We've discussed that. And how those specs are achieved, how they're turned into a product, how they're turned into a service. Okay. Pretty, this is pretty dry stuff, I admit it. And yet, it at the moment, it's necessary and useful. Things get a tiny bit more exciting when we move to now make that vital information visual. The vital information that is our technical standard and that are our procedural standards. When we make these specs visual and easy to access through visual standards, we take them out of hiding, we liberate them from thick binders in the bowels of our computers, we locate them instead at at or very close to the point of use in highly obvious, highly visible formats. You can basically find visual standards in two broad categories. The first is to organize the details of the work content in order and show them step by step. This is usually two or three pages with lots with pictures and a series of cells very cleanly separated showing you the sequence and then you move down that sequence and you see how the work content builds. That's one way to do a visual standard. It's fine. It's the most common way, but I like this other way I want to introduce you to for visual standards. And that is to highlight the tricky parts. To highlight the tricky parts. Highlight only the part that will defeat you instead of every single detail. Both approaches are valid. Every single detail, make it visual, or the tricky parts. The tricky parts are a way of displaying a higher level of expertise because it's saying parts of this procedure is pretty easy, pretty intuitive. It's not going to trip you up. But this part, maybe it's step 4.3, this is where 
you can make a mistake and you don't even know it. And let me tell you about that. And let me highlight that in a subset of visual device that surfaces the correct way and the incorrect way of wrapping a wiring harness. It isn't step by step. It's just the part of using that black tape and wrapping it and how to tear that tape, how to tear it between your thumb and your index finger, both hands. That's where people mess up. That's where they tear They tear sloppily and the tape gets caught on itself and then you have to untangle it. It's a mess. And so Louis Contadio says, this is the tricky part. Pay attention to this. I'm a master assembler. Pay attention to this. And what I love, I want to go off into the usefulness of this so that we have this all in a single radio show is that what you can do is, and this is a really good way to make visual standards alive, we're talking about visual standards now, is you have your operators create a series of standards about just the tricky pieces and have them on their own individual laminated card and then stack them in a kind of library. Only you set a little protocol in place and you say, okay, Most of you know, all of you know what the procedure is, but I want you to refine your execution of those. And I want you to, at the beginning of every week, to pick a a visual standard on the tricky part and pick one and put it on your clothesline and follow that for the week until you completely master it. If you want to follow it for two weeks because you aren't satisfied yet, you haven't achieved an exquisite, completely repeatable, precise outcome, then keep it for two weeks or three weeks. But if you've, ha- if you've completed it after one week, I'm going to ask you at the beginning of every week. In fact, I'm going to ask you on Friday before you go home, whatever shift you are, are on, is to decide on what you want to pick up the next day of work. Because it's fresh. Your experience is there from at the end of the week. And we're going to keep doing that. And we're going to work on this for two and a half months. We're going to bring up the quality level. And you know how we're going to do it? You're going to get exquisite. And you're going to be in charge of your own superb outcomes. I'm driving into the detail, you say, as a supervisor. And I can hardly wait to see what happens next. And if you find that there's a tricky bit missing, you've discovered another tricky bit Get with me right away, and I'll help you create one. And Georgiana over there in the art department, she'll make it beautiful. She promises to turn it around in three hours. So if you notice something else, and we're going to be building our understanding of this standard work, we're going to really drill down. Okay, so you're seeing how we're standardizing, but we're still exploring, we're still testing. Visual standards are very, very useful for that. So this comes, so both of those approaches are valid. You can see very clearly that I favor the B choice, which is the tricky bits, because I find that that has the flavor of I-driven in it, and it has the flavor of discovery and exploration, which is a value that you want to promote in throughout your organization. So here comes the warning. The warning is... Making your standards visual 
can help you in your war against mistakes and human error and human indifference, but in a limited way only. Despite the fact that many people, managers and operators alike, want to believe that putting crystal clear information in front of us in the form of a visual standard means that we will pay attention, we will adhere, we will get better, we will do our work exactly, this is simply not true. But please don't blame me or you or anybody else for that. Just because we don't use these visual standards you so carefully made or even I so carefully made doesn't mean that we don't care. The reason we don't use them to perfection is closely tied to how that information is formatted. That's more important than our so-called attitude That is more closely tied to the way our brain works than any lack of interest. Why? Because flat two-dimensional formats of a visual standard, as it were, the, the format itself is the culprit. A piece of paper has no power to make us or anybody do anything. And that's what a visual standard is a flat piece of paper that tells only. It tells us what we're supposed to do. And it relies on our so-called internal motivation to get it done. We pay attention, however, because we decide to. It doesn't happen automatically. It actually is a decision. In some cases, perhaps many, that decision is rooted in fear, the fear of losing our job if we don't perform to spec. You don't have to be a registered psychiatrist to know that fear is as much a motivator in the workplace as is caring about your company, caring about your performance, caring about our peers, caring about the team, caring, caring, caring. But even fear cannot produce impeccable performance from visual standards just because they're visually shared. I want to say this again. Visual standards tell only they have no power to make us do anything. On the four power levels of visuality, they are on the lowest level, which is no power at all because they're elective. But you can do something about it. You can increase the power level. If you want to increase actual adherence, then translate the information in a visual standard into a device with more power. For example... Level three power, a visual control. A visual control uses structure to limit direct behavior. For example, you translate a sign that says speed limit, 10 miles, children playing, into into what? Into a speed bump. Everyone is motivated to not hurt kids, but sometimes people don't... slow down because they didn't see the sign. So you have to first notice the sign and then you have to decide to slow down. Both of those are, well, they're not even optional. The first one is opportunistic, coincidental. We have to first notice. Both are not reliable. The speed limit sign, the visual standard, is too weak. It has no power. We need a more powerful enforcement compliance device 
especially when compliance is not optional. You got to do it. So you transform that information in the speed limit sign into the physicality of a speed bump. The speed bump has in it the embedded required behavior of slowing down. Our will is removed, our decision is removed, our choice is removed. We don't even have to see the street sign. We certainly don't have to see the speed bump. The simple fact is when we encounter it, we slow down. (laughs) If only because we don't want to ruin our struts, we slow down. The speed bump structures, rules our behavior. We do the right thing. A visual control uses structure to take away our choice deliberately. And even with our support and our willingness, please let let structure my behavior so that I can do the right thing repeatedly. A visual control, especially in this case, is a hair's breadth less powerful than the ultimate power of a visual guarantee or a pokey oak device. But more about that at a different time. So managers can get very excited about documenting workplace standards, their specs and their procedures as well they should. Documentation is foundational. We document because it is an indispensable first step, but it is only a first step. It clarifies the what. It clarifies the how. Of equal importance is understanding that it in no way, documentation in no way, assures adherence. It isn't supposed to. Managers equally love the notion of visual standards, and they mistakenly believe that once people see what they're supposed to do, they will do it. And when that doesn't happen, the same managers either blame themselves, oh, God, I wish I could get this right. How can I help my people? Or they blame their people. (laughs) But the fact is, visual standards have been over-promoted in the marketplace as an adherence device. This is the Borg part of the problem. We bought the packaging. We did not examine the content. It is very helpful to get operators involved in turning standards into pictorial sequences. But visual standards have a limited impact. They have to be combined with embedded performance embedded control. They are the least powerful of the four levels of visual devices, the four power levels. You have to keep that in mind. You have other other more powerful choices. So I want to make, I want to see if we can get through a couple of more, I hope, a couple of more clarifications because I want to move on to the notion of standardizing too quickly. So now I'm just going to summarize Seven points about visual standards to make it very, very clear because here we are in chapter two and I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. I want to give you as much of a comprehensive understanding as possible. We're looking at standards, standardization, standard work, and visual standards. So there's a lot of confusion about this and I don't want to say that I am absolutely right because in fact I know there are very very excellent practitioners who may separate things a bit differently and they do it sincerely differently than I do the important thing is that you have a differentiation 
the terms that I'm talking about entered our system in the 1980s and have morphed. Innovators that we are, a new term gets added and then parsed out, parsed out into what people understand and what they don't understand is set aside. I remember having dinner with an ex-Toyota practitioner in the UK who stated with the strongest authority that Toyota's term standardized work is synonymous with standard work. According to him, there was no difference. Well, who am I to argue out loud at over dinner? especially when I find the exchange itself enlivening and people's willingness to engage in interesting. To each and everyone who shares thoughts and perspectives, I say thank you. However, I feel obliged to point out that my purpose in sharing these terms with you are a lead-in to discussing why making standards visual does not always increase the likelihood that they will be followed, and I just talked about that. In turn, that was to trigger this next piece, which is a caution about standardizing visual, uh, visual devices too soon. This is about standardizing visual devices too soon. First, consider the following seven points. Number one. Your technical and procedural standards are the bedrock of all manufacturing and all services. If your company does not capture these details in sequence and in writing, your business is at risk. The enterprise can have no stability. Without stability, you can have no platform for growth, and therefore documenting your standards is the first indispensable step to growth, period. Second, there are many approaches popularly available that can help. TWI, training within industry, is one of them. It's a superior choice. I also like the work of my friend Jeff Nelson in North Carolina, expert OJT, a powerful combination of smart software with a powerful practice of employee input and ownership, and there are many others. Three, once you identify and document what is supposed to happen, your standards, you could decide to go further and match your work content to a timestamp and create pull, tack time-driven pull, if it serves your business purposes. But documenting reliable standards may be enough for the moment you decide. Four, once you have nailed your existing standards through whatever you choose, TWI, expert OJT, or the like, don't expect the mere act of doing so to solve your operational irregularities. A documented standard is invaluable and getting people on the same page, but it cannot guarantee that people will follow that standard. Publishing, sharing a carefully and accurately defined standard is not assurance of adherence. Five, making your technical and procedural standards visual by adding photos and images can provide a big assist. We all know that. A picture is worth a thousand words. But combining photos with clearly documented standards does not ensure that those standards will be followed, not by a long shot, followed with precision, completeness, accuracy. Six, clear, accurate, complete standards, even with many gorgeous photos, 
must be combined with our willingness to adhere to those standards before the circle of compliance can be completed. You cannot build repeatable reliability adherence to standard using a two-dimensional format, whether printed or electronic, because that format has no power of its own. Laminated or not, it is only a piece of paper. Have I said this before? (laughs) Only fear or caring can command the human will. Sharing your standards visually is likely to produce a more reliable compliance to standards for a couple of cycles, especially when the operators using those standards were involved in making those standards clear. But the compliance won't last because flat formats have no power of their own. They rely on human willingness, which in many settings is non-existent or unreliably present. And seven, the only way to circumvent the need for willingness is to build compliance to to those details of a standard into the living landscape of work, the physical workplace through visual controls and pokey oak fail-safe devices. Okay? So, I wanted to surface that very clearly now. Let us move on to the final piece. Let's take on the trap. All too easily, here's the trap. Borg thinking, standardizing too soon. This is absolutely indispensable for you to understand this premise for your visual conversion. The trap is when we implement a visual workplace and we seek to standardize our visual devices, we short-circuit the potential of that workplace. Instead of cultivating inventiveness, we standardize too soon. Many people rightly link standardization with a journey to excellence, but far too many equate this with making everything the same, uniform, unvarying, even identical. This is what I call cookie-cutter-itis. Cookie-cutter-itis, it is a disease, and it is particularly dangerous in reference to the visual workplace. Because your workplace must be eye-driven. It has a vitality that comes from the inventiveness of the individual if you let them. Addresses, for example, are an indispensable part of every visual landscape. But if we settle for addresses that follow the formula of same unifying, I beg your pardon, same uniform and unvarying, then we miss creating a robust language of visual performance made up of rich, variant visual devices. The result is an array of cookie-cutter addresses, black letters on a white background. Oh, my gosh, that's no array at all. Cookie-cutter standardization is death by sameness. It robs the enterprise of the possibility of high-performance visual excellence, and it robs its employees of the satisfaction that comes from genuine inventive engagement. It's called thinking. Robust, creative solutions that derive from thinking. For me, one of the hallmarks of a spirited and engaged workforce and therefore of a genuinely effective visual uh, conversion is what I call the weird factor in polite company, the local factor. Weird. 
weirdest good when it comes from an effort to create functionality that works, practical functionality. If a company's array of visual devices looks suspiciously similar and occurs, here's the point, on the same level of mind, something's not right with the rollout. Usually that means two things. First, good enough, the good enough bar is set too low. And as a result, the company standardizes visual improvements too quickly. And second, no time or not enough time is set aside for improvement activity. Therefore, people simply don't have time or the quiet of mind to think and to do, to test their own ideas, to experiment. In either case, visual improvement is short-circuited. And with it, performance. Visuality is the language of your operational performance. Many companies casually approach the mighty opportunity that cultivating a well-developed, locally grown language of visual devices offers. This is usually because they do not yet realize how powerfully those weird visual devices can contribute to the bottom line. Wide addresses with black letters, numbers that are plastered on everything, cookie-cutter style, under the 5S umbrella, in the mistaken belief that this fulfills the requirement. What requirement? It doesn't. It is a small wonder that the very people asked to put such dull addresses in place lose the will to maintain them or the heart to spread them. The standard is already set. It's called good enough. A sworn enemy of excellence. Do you know that there are over 18 types of borders and 15 types of addresses? Yeah. Let us move away from cookie-cutter standardization and take up the challenge of making our visual devices weird, unexpected, thrilling, as if we were the customer of these devices and our job was to delight ourselves with them. Okay? Excellence is never achieved by neutralizing differences and homogenizing people's ideas. Excellence has heft and strength and discovery and adventure to it. Who wants plain vanilla when we can have Cherry Garcia? Huh? Cultivating visual inventiveness. Let the workplace speak. (laughs) So I wanted to share those things about standards. It's really important that you get your head on straight about this. I got to go. Had a wonderful time. Thank you. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. We'll be right back.